Welcome. You are listening to the Park Avenue Synagogue Podcast, and this is Rabbi Elliot Cosgrove. While it's better to hear it live, this is a place to catch the latest sermon, conversation, and select program. If you like what you're hearing or want to learn more about our community, check out PASYN.org. And don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts to get a notification for our next episode. Enjoy and see you in shul. Shabbat shalom. Shabbat shalom. Shabbat shalom. That's a rim. Kvutzat Galilee Dreamers. Shabbat haboker. Lichod hashabbat. Lomod katzat. Al hakeilah shalanu. Atem muzmanim lavo. Anytime you like. Welcome to the Galilee Dreamers, a group of young men and women from families Druze, Arab, and Jewish from Israel who have joined us this Shabbat. You can come here anytime you want. With great clarity, I can recall exactly where I was on Purim Day of February 25th 1994, the day that Baruch Goldstein entered Hebron's Cave of the Patriarchs and killed 29 Muslim worshippers, wounding over 125. I was living in Israel that year on a GAP program after college. It was a Friday, we had a free weekend in honor of Purim, and I was at a bus stop on my way to meet a cute girl I had met some months before. Her name was Debbie. (laughs) From the payphone at the bus stop, I called my adopted Israeli family to wish them a Shabbat Shalom. And it was my host's mother, Shari, who broke the horrific news to me, telling me in no uncertain terms that I needed to be careful, steer clear of public spaces, that Goldstein's murderous rampage would undoubtedly unleash a violent response. Israel's Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin called Yasser Arafat, describing the attack as loathsome, criminal, an act of murder, and publicly denounced Goldstein on the Knesset floor as a shame on Zionism and an embarrassment to Judaism. Nevertheless, the anger on the streets overflowed. In the days that followed, Palestinian protests and riots broke out in which five Israelis and 25 Palestinians were killed. The violence, the fear, the calls back and forth to my own parents making sure I was okay. I remember it all and always, but especially during these days leading up to Monday night's festival of Purim. Vivid as my memories may be, what I didn't understand then, but what I want to share with you today is the connection between Goldstein's rampage and Purim. The reason, to the degree that one can use the word reason, why he chose to commit that heinous act on that specific day. For most of us, when we think of Purim, we think of holiday festivity and fun, costumes, groggers, and Purim spiels. We let down our hair. We poke fun at each other. It's a commandment to drink 
and hopefully we'll all fulfill the mitzvah in the coming days of giving gifts to each other and gifts to the poor. Most of all, Purim is the day we set aside to read from the scroll of Esther, the tale of Mordechai's refusal to bow down to Haman and how Haman's dastardly plans to kill all the Jews of Shushan are foiled by the courageous and beautiful Esther who, at the critical moment, saves the day by revealing her Jewish identity to King Ahasuerus by putting the needs of her people before her own self-interest. It's a fabulous story that has set sail to many sermons on topics ranging from Jewish identity in the diaspora, the role of luck and happenstance, competing models of women's leadership and leadership in general, God's role or lack thereof in this world, and of course, the threat of anti-Semitism. Not just Haman's hatred against our people, not just the hatred of his people, the Amalekites, for the Jews, but the presence and persistence of pernicious Jew hatred throughout the ages. When it comes to the Hebrew Bible, one should not pick favorites. But as a literary creation, the story of Esther is about it as good as it gets, like a royal diadem, the jewel of Esther casting light in any number of directions, producing an endless number of take-home messages. But the message we rarely discuss, that I've never spoken about until today, but it's critical to talk about when speaking of Baruch Goldstein, is how the story of Esther concludes. Esther rises to the occasion, Haman's plans are foiled, and the Jews are saved. Mordechai is elevated to power, and King Ahasuerus issues another decree, this time permitting the Jews to defend themselves. The day marked for their destruction transformed into one of salvation, the Jews enlightening, enjoying light and gladness, happiness and honor. But that's not where the story ends. In chapter 9, things go sideways and dark. You may know that Haman and his sons, ten sons are impaled at the stake. But what you may not know is that the text states that on that day the Jews of Persia rose up to attack all those who had sought to do them harm. In the city of Shushan, 500 killed in addition to Haman and his sons, and 300 more the following day. As for the rest of Persia, a staggering bloodbath of 75,000 killed by Jews. And it's not just this one chapter. This Shabbat, the Shabbat before Purim, has a special name, Shabbat Zachor, the Shabbat of Remembrance. We read a special Torah reading with verses commanding us to wipe out Amalek, blotting out the memory of our enemies and all those who would seek our downfall. The story of Esther is hard to swallow. When taken as a whole, it's a nightmare dressed like a daydream. We rarely spotlight its ending for obvious reasons. We don't teach it to kids, but it's part of the story. No less, no more than Vashti's character, Esther's beauty, and Haman's wickedness. If you're able, I invite you to join us tomorrow morning for a study session on Esther with Dr. Alana Stein-Hain of the Hartman Institute. For me, I've always excused the ninth chapter of Esther as great literature, but not to be taken literally. Some sort of gruesome fantasy devised by the author of Esther in response to their near destruction at the hands of Haman, a cathartic psychological release 
written by a disempowered author on what they would imagine to do to their oppressor if only they were empowered to do so. For those of you familiar with the Passover Haggadah, it's a bit like that moment when we stand up and open the door for Elijah and we say, pour out your wrath on the nations, the thumbing of a nose by a people who are downtrodden at their oppressors. Alternatively, for those of you with a cinematic bent, it's a bit like Quentin Tarantino's Inglorious Bastards, a brutal movie about an alternate and purgative reality in which Hitler and his henchmen are themselves violently killed. Not just the story of Etzer itself, but the reception of the story throughout Jewish history. As Eliot Horowitz documented in his book, Reckless Rights Purim and the Legacy of Jewish Violence, generations of vulnerable and oppressed Jews have turned to the story and the holiday of Purim as a vehicle for expression for their violent fantasies on what they would do to those Jew haters if only they had the power to do so. And Baruch Goldstein, he had the power, specifically a Gilon assault rifle and 140 rounds of ammunition. For Goldstein, the fantasy of Esther chapter 9 wasn't a fantasy. It was a biblical text providing license to perform a commanded act of vengeance. In Goldstein's twisted and murderous mind, the Jewish collective memory of oppression, together with the continued presence of anti-Semitism, was his prompt for violent actions. In the words of Yehuda Elkanah, an opportunity not just to assert never again, but that this must never again happen to us, even and especially that if that means shedding further blood. For me, and I hope for many of us here today, there is a direct connection between the Jewish historical memory of persecution and our present actions. In a word, the connection is empathy. As stated in the book of Exodus, you shall not oppress a stranger, for you know the feelings of a stranger, having yourselves been a stranger in the land of Egypt. But Goldstein's leverage, the, the power of Jewish memory, of vulnerability and near destruction towards ulterior and obscene ends. Why did Goldstein commit mass murder against non-Jews on Purim? Because his theology was founded not on Exodus, but on Esther, a messianic vision stemming from the fear of Jewish powerlessness, which, gun in hand, was given murderous expression on that fateful Purim day. Goldstein was beaten to death that day by survivors, but the ideology by which he lived did not die. Denied burial in a Jewish cemetery by the Israeli military, his gravesite nevertheless has become a pilgrimage site for Jewish extremists. The epitaph of his gravestone calling him a martyr who died with clean hands and a pure heart. Far more worrisome to me than where his remains are buried is where his spirit lives on. No different than in times ago, Jews are living in the midst of a push and pull of the story of Esther, a dialectic between vulnerability and power. None of us have to look far to see the Hamans of our time, those who would seek the destruction of the Jews. Take your pick. Last weekend's neo-Nazi day of hate, 
the anti-Semitic rally outside the Broadway performance of Parade, a play about the lynching of a Jew, Leo Frank, Farrakhan's most recent tirade against the Jews, hateful graffiti sprayed on the walls of synagogue, or in the last 24 hours, the arrest of a Michigan man who had been plotting to kill elected Jewish officials. The threats are real, and we are not wrong to feel vulnerable. As Jews, we know full well the threats we face in the diaspora and against our brothers and sisters in Israel who live under the threat of an imminently nuclear Iran, a hostile and rocket-firing series of proximate neighbors, and a terror-rewarding Palestinian authority. Make no mistake, the world's most ancient hatred is alive and well today, online, on the streets, and on the world stage. The Jews being made other, depicted as menacing, powerful, and threatening, and then rendered an object of hatred and violence. We must stand vigilant, we must fight to secure the well-being of our people in the diaspora and in Israel, and the perpetrators of violence against our people must be brought to justice. And we must never, ever let the historic memory and lived reality of anti-Semitism provide cover for the violent excesses of an unhinged and messianic abuse of Jewish power. The vigilante settlers who rampaged through the Palestinian town of Huara in the West Bank this past week committed a pogrom that is a travesty of every human and every Jewish value. It is an outrage. The fact that it happened, the fact that the perpetrators have yet to be brought to justice, and the fact that Betzalel Smotrich, a high-ranking minister in Israel's government, has subsequently called for that town to be wiped out. Jews, to be sure, are not the only people in whose ranks the memory of persecution and victimization has been leveraged towards acts of violent aggression. The example of the Serbs is but one of many examples that come to mind. But it is, as Jews, perhaps more than any other people who would be well advised to consider how the memory of victimization, when combined with the apparatus of state power, can lead to violent injustices perpetrated against others. Israel is on the precipice, the fabric of Israeli society unraveling before our eyes. And I am frightened, very, very frightened, as to what might happen in the coming days as the tinderbox that is the Jewish state comes into contact with the match of a theologically fraught holiday. It's not merely that the specter of Baruch Goldstein and the hateful ideology he espoused continues to, doom, to loom large. Until recently, Itamar Ben-Gavir had a framed picture of Goldstein on his wall. Itamar Ben-Gavir is not an outlawed fringe figure. In this new government, he's a minister of security overseeing the police. If, God forbid, violence breaks out this Purim, whose side will he be on? The side of calm or the side of bloodletting? It's enough to keep me up at night. It should be keeping all of us up at night. As American Jews, we neither vote in Israel nor do we serve in its military. Ours is a bit part in this unfolding drama. 
Our powers are far more modest than our passions. There's not a whole lot we can do, but we do have a choice to make. It is our Esther moment. Will our vision for the Jewish people be one that stems from fear, hatred, and demonization of the other, or will we offer a vision and a path of dialogue, trust building, and bridge building? Will we turn inward, crouching tightly into a defensive posture, or will we stretch outside of our comfort zone and break bread with one another and seek to strengthen our shared future? Will we lay all the blame at the feet of the other side, condemning only their crimes, or will we also turn the moral mirror onto ourselves and call out the ugly elements within our own people? Will our experience of Jewish vulnerability be leveraged as a moral cudgel to excuse Jewish violence, or will it be a prompt for empathy? We are Jews. We do not turn the other cheek. But we do, we can, and we must be ever willing to be open to the possibility that tomorrow can be better than today. To live by the maxim, to whom evil is done, do evil in return, is to resign ourselves to an unbreakable cycle of violence. As Reverend King preached, returning hate for hate multiplies hate, adding deeper darkness to a night already devoid of stars. Darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. This Purim, I pray that light and love reign supreme and that all people enjoy the blessing of light and gladness, happiness and honor, and most of all, shalom, peace. Shabbat shalom. Thank you for listening to the Park Avenue Synagogue podcast. If you enjoyed this episode and want to learn more about our community, check out PASYN.org. See you in shul. Hallelujah.